science and research are under attack, what do we do? When science and research are under attack, what do we do? Stand up for science. That was the sound of scientists and citizens standing up for science at a rally outside this year's meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They're voicing their concerns about the uncertain road ahead for federal scientists in the Trump administration. And that's the topic of today's episode of Dot Science. Welcome. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald, from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy here at UCS. We wanted to talk with Andy because he's experienced the relationship between science and government from both sides. He's a former dean of the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture at the University of New Hampshire, and he served in both the Bush and Clinton administrations, ultimately finishing as Deputy Director of the National Marine Fisheries Service. He's a highly respected scientist with deep knowledge of marine science and ocean management. At UCS, Andy's working to strengthen the role of science in our democracy. Not an easy job these days. Our correspondent, Seth Michaels, interviewed Andy at a recent meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Boston. Hi, this is Seth Michaels. I'm reporting from the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. I'm here with Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, you were a federal scientist with the National Marine Fisheries Service during the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration. Uh, So you've seen the federal process from the inside. And from what we've seen, there might be some threats to scientific integrity in this new administration. Uh, What are some of the concerns that you have? Sure. Thank you, Seth. I think in the election and then in the early days of the administration, the most disturbing things have been the rhetoric dismissing scientific evidence as well as many other kinds of facts, the general thrust of policy pronouncements on things such as rolling back of regulations or changing fundamental direction uh, for particular public health and safety protections, whether that be on climate or pollution or endangered species protections. And then an enormous concern because the people who have been brought into the administration, either in transition or in appointments, political appointments, have in many cases quite a long history of not only dismissing science but directly attacking the science and the scientists involved. Climate is the most prominent example of that, where you have people who have been essentially paid for years to carry out a strategy of undermining the scientific evidence that would motivate action to address global warming. Those people are now actually running the agencies responsible for regulating those industries. Formerly, they were paid by those same industries to undermine the science. Mm -hmm. That makes me extremely concerned. Um, So as a concerned scientist, I really know what it means to be concerned um, with this administration. And then I think you are hearing in the congressional agenda, unfortunately, much the same with a set of attacks on the process by which science informs policy, attacks on the way that agencies do their business to conform to a political agenda, 
a dismissal of the science in favor of wholly political decisions that unfortunately tilt our public policy process very, very much towards the interests of big business, and I mean really big business like the petrochemical industry. Mm -hmm. The rhetoric is often around, you know, concern for small business, but that's a smokescreen. The rhetoric is often around transparency. That's unfortunately a smokescreen if you look at the details. So I do think that, you know, the public should be really concerned about the ability of this administration to carry through on what should be science-based policymaking. They're going in the other direction. And so you went through a federal transition while you were working with NOAA. You went through the transition between uh, George H.W. Bush's administration and the Clinton administration. What about this transition is what usually happens, and what do you see as unusual outside the norm? Well, usually what happens, in my experience, is that, of course, a, a new president brings in people who you know, may have a change in direction from a previous administration. But generally, they will come in and say, I'm really excited to be here working at NOAA, I'm really excited to be here working at the EPA, we perform a vital role. I deeply respect the civil servants who have dedicated their work and their careers to public service. Our greatest resources is the people who work in this agency, and I support you. As we move forward, sometimes I might have a different point of view on certain things, but be assured that I believe in the mission of this agency. In this administration, it's almost the mathematical inverse of that. It's bringing in people who say, I don't believe in the mission of this agency. In fact, I'm not even sure this agency should exist. I've been working for many years to tear it apart, and I expect to be able to push through my agenda. So if there's anything that you do, scientists, that I don't like, I want to scrutinize it first, and I might just get rid of it. I want to know who works on different things. Well, what difference does that make? I want to know which programs are working on climate change and where they're funded from. That's totally outside the box from what I've observed before. Right. And it seems that scientists and employees at these agencies are getting directives that are sometimes vague, sometimes contradictory, and sometimes actively hostile to the work that they do. I mean, that's certainly true. And as a federal employee, I know the public perception, or at least the rhetoric from those who seem to dislike government, is that federal employees are just there to collect a big paycheck, which isn't so big, really, and sort of are sitting around in these offices doing meaningless work. The reality is exactly the opposite. I mean, it's very dedicated people who work extremely hard, who are as talented as anyone in their fields. They're not all in Washington. 80% of federal scientists are outside of Washington. They, you know, live all across the country in communities. They know communities. It's not an inside-the-beltway exercise. But also, I'd say that federal employees generally, and certainly scientists, I mean, they expect to come in and support the mission of the agency, which is given to it by Congress. You know, the mission of the EPA is given to it by the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and, you know, the Chemical Safety Improvement Act for the 21st, all of the enabling statutes. You don't really do anything that you're not authorized to do by Congress. And you have to believe in those things deeply. So they're waiting to say, okay, I do my job, we have new people coming in, and I want to keep doing my job. But when you have this level of uncertainty, it really calls into question, so what is it that my job is now if they're saying we want to roll back the Clean Air Act or we don't want the EPA and all these other things, which in my mind are really off track. So what are some of the red flags that scientists should be looking for to know if things are going wrong when you're talking about talking to the public, access to data, data monitoring and collection? What are the signs that would indicate that 
this administration is going to undermine science or violate scientific integrity? Well, first of all, many, many scientists, as I indicated before, have colleagues that they work with in federal agencies. So they you know, should be reaching out to their colleagues and saying, to understand what's going on, not to get somebody in trouble, but to understand what's happening inside the agencies and if there are fundamental changes underway. Secondly, I think there's an awful lot of information online, and as that information changes, whether it be websites changing or opportunities to participate in different programs, and that changes, it's important to call that out, that these are changes that are unexpected in some cases. I mean, routine changes, no problem, but unexpected changes, many scientists should think, does that seem like we're holding to scientific integrity the way that these changes are proceeding? And I actually think that scientists need to connect with their elected representatives. I mean, scientists are citizens too, and they're knowledgeable about science matters. They should be thinking about what's happening within the agencies, among their colleagues, in the broader scientific discourse. And they should be reaching out to their elected representatives and saying, you know, from my perspective as a scientist, this really concerns me. Mm -hmm. Because elected representatives, believe it or not, they are most interested in what their constituents have to say. So if you are a constituent, the door is always open. You should walk through it. Speaking of Congress, the congressional leadership, like Lamar Smith, who's the House Science Committee chair, who is one of the first members of Congress to endorse President Trump, they have had a very aggressive stance on federal agencies and government science. What are some of the risks from Congress? What are some of the the actions Congress could take that could undermine science? Um, There's sort of two sets of actions. One, I think, is attacking the process by which science informs policymaking in the agencies. And we've seen a whole set of proposals that undermine the way that science connects to public policy, changes the way that science advisory boards work, and sort of turns the idea of conflict of interest on its head and moves bills forward that would suggest that industry-based scientists are entirely without conflict of interest, but academics are conflicted and should have to recuse themselves from advising agencies because they receive grants, but that the industries that are regulated by those agencies are entirely objective and have no axe to grind, which seems a little bit silly when you say it, but that's in fact what the bill says. That constrict the kind of information that um, agencies are allowed to consider for usually inappropriate reasons, such as saying that the public needs to be able to evaluate the raw data of every study so that they can analyze it for themselves. Well, you know, I've been a scientist for 30 years, done statistical analysis for 30 years. I don't normally go in and analyze the raw data in other people's studies for myself to decide whether I think this is a good idea as a citizen. So the underlying rationale there is not for public information, it's to hamstring agencies, and so on and so forth. So there's that set of process attacks that are coming. The other set of attacks really are on scientists themselves, targeting individual scientists because Mr. Smith or one of his colleagues doesn't like the answer that they come up with in their work, doesn't want them to do the work in the first place. You know, it's a little bit of the strategy of if they're not allowed to collect the data, then we can't say that there's a problem, and therefore we can't actually have public policy to address that problem. And so those attacks on individual scientists or science programs or individual grants, unfortunately, have come out of the Science Committee and elsewhere as well. 
And I think that should worry scientists, whether they work for federal agencies or they work outside. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the risks for the public at large if federal science is undermined? Well, this is a really interesting question because there's lots and lots of risks for the public, and you can go into a long list. But we actually did an experiment. It wasn't a planned experiment, but we did an experiment that gave us some insight into exactly this question back in 2013 when the federal government shut down because Congress couldn't pass a budget. And the shutdown was, you know, for, for more than a month. And we at Union of Concerned Scientists reached out to our science network and asked people to tell us what the impact was. And, of course, there were impacts on scientists who were stranded in different parts of the world and couldn't get enough money to get home or were students who couldn't start their work and had no source of income. There were experiments that were canceled that had been planned for, in some cases, years. But we also got information, for example, from someone who worked on agricultural pests who said, I have farmers calling me up who are saying... You know, what's the prognosis for these sets of plant diseases? I'm not allowed to tell them, and they're at their planting season. And they're saying, I need this information. No, I'm sorry, we can't tell them because the federal government is closed because Congress didn't pass a budget. We had other people that said, I'm, you know, monitoring water supplies, and I'm not allowed to give people any information about, you know, water systems or wildlife areas that people depend upon for recreation or for, you know, of of various sorts and so on. So the impacts are more than just a closing of a national park here and there. And that closure of the federal government is sort of the style of things that we can expect when you dramatically downsize the science programs Mm -hmm. in government. It's everything from monitoring pollution sources to diseases to weather and agricultural systems and so on. And there's some rhetoric out there saying, oh, no, private business was just going to pick up and do that. Actually, no, they're not. I mean, private business relies on that information. That's what our government does. It's a governmental function. And so those are things that will impact the public directly. We'll be back with more from Dr. Andrew Rosenberg. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at ucsusa.org slash podcast. UCS is following the Trump administration closely and will be calling out attacks on science as we see them. For more info, go to ucsusa.org slash Trump. So we are talking about public health, talking about what kinds of research federal government scientists actually do, and you look at things like pollution. When you look at regulations that have come around recently, some public safety protections around mercury and ozone pollutants like that, President Trump's nominee for the EPA, Scott Pruitt, when he was Attorney General of Oklahoma, sued to try and block those regulations. Can you talk a little bit about how the federal government should be using science and how they use science to make protections and rules like that, and what effect it would have to have someone like Pruitt overseeing that? Yeah, so, I mean, the way that rulemaking goes for things like ozone or mercury pollution is really starting from the scientific evidence. There's a long history of understanding some of the respiratory and health impacts of ozone, and there certainly is a very long history with mercury. Um, You know, thousands of papers that really try to document the, the impacts of mercury. That doesn't mean it's not complicated in terms of its public health impact, but we know that there is an impact. So it may often be years before someone believes that we have sufficient information to say, okay, 
this is an appropriate level to regulate emissions of ozone from major industrial facilities. And that standard might be updated multiple times, each time with new scientific analyses, each time with new public comment, each time with new proposals on how those regulations would proceed. And frankly, all of the regulations like that are implemented by the states. And so when they say, well, states know better how to deal with these issues, that's fine. That's how the law works. The states figure out how to deal with the issues. What the federal government does is set what the standard should be so that if you happen to live on one side of the state line or another, you at least can expect the same public health protection. Now, Congress might not say, I want an ozone standard of this level, or I want a mercury standard of that level, or I want a drinking water standard for lead of a particular level. That's left to the agencies to determine based on the best science available. But it goes through a very long public process. Now, when someone like Mr. Pruitt comes in and sues and said, we don't like the ozone standard, really what they're saying is many industries don't want to have to comply with the ozone standard. And some of those industries are in my state, like the oil and gas industry, which is Mm -hmm. a primary producer of ozone. And therefore, I'm going to sue because if the authority is devolved down to the state on what the standard is, not the measures, they already get to do that themselves, then I can make my major industries happy by backing off on the standards. And instead of industry assuming the costs, guess who takes on the costs? The public. We're talking about the costs and benefits of these rules. And it seems from this administration, from people like Pruitt and from the administration's allies in Congress, like Chairman Smith, that they're very focused on the cost to industry of protections from pollution and not especially interested in the cost to the public of the effects of pollution. Yeah, actually, it's even more than that. They've created a narrative that regulation is just about cost to industry. And you will notice that they never, ever even use the term benefits to the public. They never talk about benefits to the public. Now, why might that be? Because every study that's tried to analyze the benefits versus the costs of any major regulation has shown that the benefits are huge compared to the cost to industry. And their goal is to shed those costs to industry and put them back onto the public. All you need to do is go to southeast Houston, to the communities of color in southeast Houston, look at the level of contamination from ozone and many other things, and they pay the price in the public health of people in those communities. Right. And, and when we talk about the cost to the public, that's not a number on a spreadsheet. That's hospital visits. That's days of work missed. That's... That's children yeah, un- with asthma. Children with asthma. You know, it's children with lead in water supplies. It's, you know, contaminated playgrounds. <laughs> um, it is old people who can't go outside their house on certain days because there are bad air days. They're not bad air days because, you know, there just happens to be a little bit of natural variation. They're bad air days because of the activities of, of businesses. And so what agencies like the EPA do is to say, okay, we need to deal with these problems. Let's try to do it in a a way that is workable. And yes, there will be costs on businesses, and they do a pretty good job of trying to keep those costs under control. But fundamentally, their goal has to be to protect the public health and safety. They do that, but businesses are really saying we shouldn't pay any costs. And in fact, the Trump administration has said no businesses should have to pay any more costs because their new proposal remove two regulations for every one that's in place says that the additional costs to industry should net out to zero. In other words, businesses shouldn't have to pay any more to deal with the problems that they create. (laughs) So it seems like there are a lot of risks to science, to scientific integrity, and to the public benefits that come from science uh, in the Trump administration. 
Um, how can the scientific community outside the federal government support independent science and support science-based policies and protect them from these attacks? Well, again, the, you know, the most important thing people can do is speak to their elected representatives, speak to members of their community that are going to vote to not allow, you know, some of these issues to just pass by that are either hiding the science or mis- misrepresenting the science, to just pass by without challenge. As we, I think, have seen in this political system, and as we should see in this political system, votes matter. And so if scientists can actually connect in their communities, connect to their elected representatives at all levels, from local all the way up to national, um, that builds political back pressure that says, wait a minute, no, we don't accept that we're just going to hand over everything to industry. There is a public interest here as well. It's absolutely fine that, you know, I'm not disputing that businesses should make money, but the idea that there is a public interest needs to be brought back in front of the public. And scientists are really important because this is not dictating as a scientist what public policy should be. It is trying to help your fellow citizens understand what the fundamental scientific information is. All right. And so, uh, you know, science is such an important part of our economy, and it has this very long long-standing bipartisan history going back to the Constitution. What do you see as the the role for science and scientists uh, moving forward under this administration and hopefully looking beyond? Well, I mean, I I think the the role of scientists only increases, and I think many earlier career scientists really want to have an impact and are no longer satisfied with the idea that, you know, wait until you get tenure and then you can speak out. And so I think that people should follow their heart and try to use their scientific training to have a real impact on society in every way possible. A senator said to me the other day a really interesting quote. She said, everyone on Capitol Hill is strongly supportive of STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But sometimes it seems like we don't want to listen to those we've STEM educated. (laughs) Well, we need STEM educated people to speak out and to become a forceful voice in society again. We always have been as scientists, but we need to reinvigorate that strength by acting as citizens, by working with our fellow citizens, whatever your position is on public policy, providing better information into um, a really difficult political environment is ever more important. And so I think that scientists should be very engaged. I think, you know, everyone should put in as much time as they can and their inclination um, leads them to whatever that may be. Everything from carrying a sign in the street to contacting a member of Congress or signing on to a letter to giving a talk at the public library or joining in a political discussion at a local level or in your local newspaper. I think there's enormous opportunity for scientists to have much more influence. We cannot retreat into our little labs and stare at a computer screen and then say, tisk tisk. I think things should be better, but none of my business. It is your business. Thank you. I'm here with Andrew Rosenberg, director of our Center for Science and Democracy, here at the uh, AAAS annual meeting in Boston. Thank you. It's time for a short segment we're calling Sidelining Science, the latest weird news from an administration that doesn't seem to have much use for the free practice and expression of science. Our correspondent, Shreya Durvasula, has the story. If you're on Twitter, you might have noticed your timeline's full of sad-looking animal faces lately. Animal rights activists and pet lovers are trying to shame the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, into restoring access to some crucial information. Bad hamburgers? Contaminated lettuce? Nope. 
The USDA has taken down information on the treatment of animals at thousands of labs, zoos, puppy mills, and other facilities, even the circus. So, it turns out the USDA is in charge of more than just food and farms. The agency actually also regulates how animals are treated in the U.S. across many institutions. The records and information on animal welfare used to be easily available to anyone, but as of February 3rd of this year, the USDA removed all that info and demanded that anyone looking for it file a Freedom of Information Act request. Animal welfare advocates say the missing information makes it almost impossible to learn how research labs and circuses, zoos, are complying with federal regulations on animal well-being. And if you're looking for a healthy puppy and you want to make sure it doesn't come from a badly run puppy mill, you just won't know anymore. UCS thinks that data on regulation based on good science and good stewardship of our animal friends shouldn't be kept from the public. The USDA claims privacy concerns but we're calling it Sidelining Science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Andrew Rosenberg. We'll be hearing more from Dr. Rosenberg and his colleagues at the Center for Science and Democracy in the coming months as things unfold. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Our correspondents were Seth Michaels and Shreya Dervasula. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Rich Hayes is our executive producer, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Hey!